there's a lot of things when you come to this passage that you kind of have to sort through. Uh, one of them is the geography of the passage. Uh, Elijah has started in Carmel in chapter 18, and then he went over to Jezreel. Uh, from Jezreel, he takes a journey about 120 miles south to Beersheba, and then he goes, you know, another day's journey out into the wilderness of the Negev. Um, and from there, he, he goes another 250-ish miles to the, the place where we think Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai is. Uh, so he's traveling a long way. Uh, some of that gets lost a little bit. We just read these places and, and we don't realize exactly what is going on. But I think just putting that in front of us helps us to begin to walk through this passage and really... I don't know, uh, understand what Elijah is going through a little bit and maybe get a clearer picture uh, because the text tells us that he's afraid. Now think about that. I mean, Elijah is has been standing up to Ahab and to the whole nation over the course of the last several chapters in some pretty um, pretty overhand, you know, overhanded ways. He's, he's directly confronted Ahab with the drought and everything that was connected with that. And then, of course, at Mount Carmel, you know, all of this. And God has shown up. God has shown up in the drought. God has shown up in bringing the rain. God has shown up in, um, in bringing the fire down on Mount Carmel. God has continually shown up on behalf of of Elijah. So now he is in Jezreel and he hears that Ahab through Jezebel, Jezebel through Ahab wants to take his life and he flees. The text says he is afraid. What's the, what's the nature of this? Is this just pure fear, fear for his life? Obviously that is mentioned several times here. I think probably there's some of that. You know, and some of that is just uh, we go through seasons uh, of our own feeling secure with God and, and how that works out to us. I think that is indicative. I do think part of this is uh, owing to the zeal and the belief that Elijah has. You see, even when he comes to Sinai or Horeb, he, he speaks to this and he, he comes in a, as a prophet, you know, in the place where the covenant was made, he is bringing covenant suit against the people of Israel saying, this is what I am zealous for. This is what I care about. This is what, uh, I, I have been fighting for. And God, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> You know, I, I thought that when you destroyed everything on Mount Carmel, when you came down in this obvious demonstration of fire and power and answer to prayer, I thought that that was going to be the moment where, where, uh, where hearts would change, where the nation would come back to what we were seeking to call them to, the covenant that you had made with them in the beginning. I thought this was going to be the moment and nothing has happened. Nothing has happened. 
You know, Elijah, as much as he is afraid, is disappointed uh, with the the way that the path is going. And I think we'll see that as we go. You know, what, what you know, one of the ways that Yahweh deals with Elijah is he broadens his vision. And he says, There are things at work here that you have no idea of. But you are depending on the fire. You are depending upon the stupendous, the momentous, the things that are outstanding in the eyes of men. And this is the source of your disappointment. I wonder if uh, any of you have ever been in that place where you depend on the fire. You know, sometimes I think about that. We just, Easter Sunday was this past week and, you know, there's lots of people in church and we're putting new seats out for everybody just to accommodate folks. And, you know, you really work on your Easter sermon. You are crafting it. You're pulling out all of your best exegesis, your, your most heart-touching illustrations, all of these things, because we, we think that it is in the fire you know, that is where things are going to happen. And sometimes I know from my own experience and just talking to ministers over the year, you know, that post-Easter letdown can be so profound uh, because what we were counting on, we were counting on the fire and it didn't materialize in exactly the way that we thought it was going to materialize. And so part of what Elijah goes through here is a check on our own hearts. You know, what, what is it that we are, are banking on? Is it the programs? Is it the flashiness? Is it the things that attract the most attention? Is it being platformed in the, the right uh, context and and sharing those uh, opportunities is it the fact that your your you know your sermons go out over the radio or they're uh, on the internet and and people are clicking and downloading is it the fire is that what we're looking for uh, is that maybe the source of our disappointment how does God deal with his discouraged prophet. I think it's really instructive how he deals with him. He really meets him holistically here in the wilderness and then continuing on into uh, or at the mountain, Mount Sinai, where he meets him in the wilderness. So it's a fascinating sort of interlude in the story, isn't it? Uh, by the way, Elijah's not alone. There have been two other major prophets who have wished for their lives to be taken. You know, one, of course, was Moses. A lot of similarities here between Elijah and Moses, but in Numbers 11, Moses has had it with the people, and he just wishes that God would take his life. And then the other one, quiz, you know, Jonah, uh, Jonah chapter four, again, you know, although that time was a little bit different, that time he was a little bit upset that God was showing mercy and that change was happening in, in the people of Nineveh, but uh, just his own disappointment with God and uh, how that was happening. So how does God deal with these folks? And you see it in Numbers 11, you also see it in Jonah four, God deals with them very gently. 
And here he deals with Elijah very holistically. Notice he sends an angel. Uh, The second time the angel is mentioned, it's the angel of the Lord. Sometimes the angel of the Lord is a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. I don't know that we have any indication of that here. First time in the text, it's just mentioned as an angel. It's an angel sent from the Lord and certainly acts on the Lord's behalf. But what's kind of surprising is what the angel does. The angel lets him sleep. Uh, the angel uh, cooks for him, uh, feeds him a meal. The angel touches him. Uh, you know, when God interacts with Elijah, he asks him questions. You know, what are you doing here, Elijah? When God asks a question like that, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. Uh, he, he knows very well what Elijah is doing here, but, but he's giving Elijah space to process, and, and he is listening. You know, so very holistically, God deals with his physical needs. Uh, God deals with his relational needs, uh, touch. He deals with his psychological needs, you know, giving him space to process. He deals with his spiritual needs. He says, come and meet me. Let's talk face to face. God deals with Elijah with a tender touch. Uh, he doesn't preach a sermon to him. Like, Elijah, what are you doing? You know, don't you know, don't you see, I, I am Yahweh, get out there, do what you're supposed to do. He, he doesn't uh, abrade him. He doesn't, you know, call him to the carpet. He, he does these very practical, uh, hospitable even things with Elijah in order to serve his discouraged servant. And I think that there's something there for us, you know, one, you know, when you are discouraged, you may need a, a multifaceted approach. It might not be just more Bible study that you need. It might not be just three extra hours in your prayer room. You might need a nap. You, you might need a, a break. You might need to, to step away from the ordinary uh, contours of ministry. Uh, you might need to pay attention to your physical health. One of the top five reasons that ministers do not lack, last in the ministry is their physical health. They simply don't take care of it. Uh, they let themselves go, and so health problems force them out of the ministry, variety of things. This could be mental health. This could be physical health. Uh, just very practical. And God's dealing with Elijah helps us to see, like, he cares about those things. On the flip side, you know, as we enter into caring for others, I think God sets a pattern for us here. You know, people don't always need the answers right away. You know, God is going to get to that. He is going to meet with Elijah and he is going to seek to expand his mind and help him to see things in a different way. But it's not the first thing that he does. <laughs> the, the first thing that he does is he sees to their physical needs. I think it's one of the reasons why we have elders and deacons as officers in our church. You know, the, the deacons are, are charged with coming alongside and seeing to people's physical needs. 
uh, elders are are charged to to starting with the spiritual needs and seeing that and and sometimes people really need that diaconal ministry as it were uh, and and God helps us to see that remember Jesus came as the chief diaconoi correct he came as the one to to serve his people he got down and he washed their feet uh, see very tangible, hospitable things. And I find that encouraging both as a recipient of that from the Lord and as one who is called to give that. So we're, we're dealing with a couple of things. This is, this is my third point now. I'm not sure if you're picking them up. Uh, but uh, first of all, just where's Elijah? Is he mad at God? Is he disappointed with God? What's going on? Secondly, he's ministered to holistically by Yahweh. Thirdly, uh, he, he meets the transcendent God. So 250 miles later, you know, God gets him ready for this journey. I'm not sure the text doesn't tell us if Elijah had set out to go there. It seems like Elijah was ready to quit. You know, when he comes to Beersheba, he he dismisses his staff. Uh, he had a servant there. It wasn't because he was wealthy. It was probably somebody from the school of the prophets. And he just, you know, ministry staff, you're done. I'm done with the ministry. I'm going to go out now outside of the, the promised land. Notice there, Beersheba is the far south. He goes outside the promised land and he's ready to just quit the ministry. But God's not done with him. And so he takes him another 250 miles, 40 days and 40 nights traveling. You know, I, how exactly are those numbers used there? You, you can do 250 miles walking normally, a lot less than 40 days. Uh, but, you know, how circuitous route, the terrain up and down. 40 days certainly calls to mind uh, Moses in, in the wilderness and the... Uh, you know, that being on the, the mountains, even the 40 or the top of Sinai with God, even the 40 years of wandering in the desert. So 40 is a significant number. And, and for the reader, the original audience certainly would have connected with that. But he comes to, he comes to Sinai. A couple of things that are interesting uh, in verse uh, nine, he comes to a cave and he lodges in it. I'm not exactly sure how the King James translates that, but the Hebrew is the same term as cleft. You know anybody else that was in a cleft in the rock on Sinai? Uh, there, there's, there's such obvious parallels here between Elijah and Moses uh, and, and the Lord revealing himself to the prophet at a time, if you remember in, in Exodus 32, 33, and 34, when Moses was going through this, this was after the sin of the golden calf. So there's disappointment on Moses's part with the people and God reveals himself to Moses. Here he repeats this process with his prophet Elijah. And with Elijah, it's interesting because he, he wants Elijah to recognize that, that he is transcendent, that he is able to work in multifaceted ways. So he says, come on, Elijah, come stand outside. Now, also noteworthy is the fact that Elijah doesn't do so right away. If you notice, um, 
when he says that, he says, go out, this is verse 11, and stand on the mount before the Lord. And then it says the Lord passed by in the hurricane or the wind, the earthquake and the fire. God's not in those things. And then the sound of the low whisper, verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance to the cave. So he stays in the cave during the uh, the the earthquake, the wind, and the fire, and he doesn't go out until the low whisper. Now, what is what is God saying to Elijah? What is he communicating to him? What is he communicating to us? It, it's not that he's never in those things, because we know that God is in those things. In fact, you know, that was what 1 Kings 18 was all about. You know, God came in the fire, and he, he, he consumed and he demonstrated who he was. You know, God came in the, the whirlwind to Job and, and he showed himself who he was. In the very same place at Mount Sinai, God revealed himself in the earthquake to the people of Israel. Uh, later on, Pentecost, you know, the, the sound of the mighty rushing wind, the fire. Like, God is in these things. But I think what he is communicating to Elijah here is that I am not only in these things. I am also in the low whisper. I am also in the harder to discern places, the places where you have to look more carefully and you have to pay attention uh, more slowly in order to discern who I am and what I am doing in these places. You know, in, in this particular thing, he says, here's how I'm working. I'm working through hot sale. Hatzel, I mean, he's a Syrian king. There's no evidence in the scriptures that he ever bowed a knee to Yahweh. And yet God is going to use this guy to wipe out the Baal worship in Israel. I'm working through Jehu. Jehu, you know, this, this is a guy that was flawed at best. Uh, he, he killed so many people. Uh, he had so much blood on his hands, but God had a plan. I'm, I, I want you to, uh, to anoint Elisha. Elisha. Elisha probably doesn't even know who Elisha is at this point. God has to guide him to where he is. God was working in ways that Elijah had no idea of. Uh, it was it was the low whisper. It was the unexpected. And this, I think, is where God really wants to encourage us. You know, we we struggle in ministry because we say, "How how are we going forward?" You know, how how can we keep doing these things? Because more often than not, we we cannot see what God is doing. And and if we're honest with ourselves, the discouragement, if we're honest with ourselves, the uh, frustration, um, even the reliance that we have when things are going well, it's not going to be enough to sustain us. And logically, we find ourselves with Elijah, with Moses, with Jonah, you just take my life. Uh, My friend, you know, he, he came to a very, very dark place. But I realize, like, there are so many people in ministry that I know that are a half a step away from that dark place. How do we go forward? 
We can only go forward when we learn to trust that God most often is working in the shadows, that God most often is working in ways that we can't see and that we wouldn't expect. And I think the greatest example of this, of course, is Good Friday. In one sense, it was very loud, you know, when Jesus expired, Mark 16, or Mark uh, 15, he, he expired with, with a loud cry. But on the other hand, it, it was so silent. It was so dark. It was so unexpected that the, the momentous time in history, the, the thing that was going to make more difference than anything was going to be an ignominious death at the hands of the Romans. And that was going to be the thing that was going to crush the head of Satan. But Jesus knew this, didn't he? And, and he, he too came to a mountain, and he came to a mountain with Elijah and Moses, the Mount of Transfiguration. And what were they talking about there? They were talking about his exodus. They were talking about the way forward. They were talking about the cross. And Jesus knew that it was in the darkness of that. It was in the shadow. It was not the way that anybody was looking for it. It was not the successful program. It was not uh, the, the triumphant crowd uh, turning sermon. It, it wasn't the power exhibition. No, it was weakness, surrendering his life uh, giving it out, letting the, the blood drain out. It was that moment that was going to turn the very point of history. And that's what gives me hope. You know, how, how can you do what you do? We had, well, I won't go there. Uh, <laughs> um, needless to say, coming off of Easter, already I have faced the, the discouragement of Tuesday. Uh, what, what is it that gives you hope? It's that God works in ways that we don't see. So how do we move out with God? Maybe that's the last thing. He meets with him. He shows himself to be, to be transcendent. And then he, he sends Elijah on his way. And, and Elijah now has a new task. Uh, it, it's interesting and again, we don't have all the information on this, but Elijah is told to go and anoint Hatzael and anoint Jehu and anoint Elisha. We, he goes, in the very next verses after this, he anoints Elisha. There's never any indication uh, that he does the, the other two things. And, and we honestly don't know whether he did or not. But this is really, you know, other than the anointing of Elisha and, and then the, the, the taking of Elijah, which again is another irony here. Elijah is the prophet that wants to die, and he's one of two people that doesn't die. Uh, he is transmuted into heaven, uh, and, and he there is, is existing as one of the two people that didn't die. But he has a task to go and to be faithful, to go and do the little things, to maybe fade out of the public sphere, 
uh, and to allow his life of ministry and faithfulness to be the thing that carries on. And I think that's part of the question for us in terms of our ministry. Are we, are we willing to be there? You know, Francis Schaeffer would talk about there being no little people and no little places. You know, nothing is too small uh, for the Lord to use. No one is too small for the Lord uh, to, uh, to weave into his sovereign purposes. Are we willing to move into those places uh, and to be led by the Lord? Elijah does. Uh, and, and he is uh, trans, trans whatever the right word is, uh, into heaven. He's brought into heaven, being one of two people that doesn't die. So I hope that's been some encouragement to you this morning, uh, because discouragement will come uh, for all of us. But God is the one who is faithful. God is the one who is working in ways that we oftentimes cannot see. And God is the one who is inviting us uh, to a journey with him, a journey in which he sees you and he knows you, he will care for you, and he will bring you eventually to your destination. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for uh, its power. Uh, we're grateful for that. We're thankful as well for its pastoral care for us here this morning. Lord, we are, are so humbled to serve not only a, a holy God, uh, but to serve also a, a tender and a compassionate God who knows that we are frail, uh, who will not break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax. And so, Lord, I, I would pray for these sisters, for these brothers, uh, that you would uh, bring succor to their spirits this morning, uh, that you would uh, embolden them, strengthen them, give them what they need, uh, both now and in the future. Uh, Lord, we, we never know those things that we will face, uh, only that we will face things. Uh, and, and Lord, we, we pray that you would be with us even as you were with Elijah. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.